good morning everybody and a very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Valerie Bierman and it's always a huge pleasure each year to introduce you to Jacqueline Wilson. When I started the book festival, the Children's Fair, 24 years ago, there wasn't a phenomenon of Jacqueline Wilson. But I'm happy to say now that there is. And every year we have literally hundreds of you all turn up to see uh, who I'm sure is the highlight of your year. Jacqueline has just finished being the Children's Laureate, which she's done a huge amount of work, not only traveling all around the countryside, but doing everything she can to encourage children to read. Now, I don't, I'm sure none of you need any encouragement to read because you all know Tracy Beaker from the wonderful books and on television. But Jackie also is one of the rare authors who writes for a very wide age range as well. There are books for younger children, right up to teenage books. Now, I know you don't want to hear me talking, so without any more ado, uh, can I introduce you to Jacqueline Wilson. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. I absolutely love it when I get to come up to Edinburgh, even when it was pouring with rain, as it was yesterday. And sadly, I have to go home late this afternoon. But as soon as I finish signing the very last book, I'm going to be whizzing off to go and see some art exhibitions and have make the most of my time here because it's so very, very special to me. And um, I, I wonder how many of you have actually heard me talk before? Hands up. Some, some of you have. This is the thing that gets a bit worrying because I know I met some, some girls yesterday that had heard me several times here and I thought, gosh, I've got to start ringing the changes. Otherwise, people will be chanting it along with me as, as I go. But um, what I thought I would do today, because I saw in the programme slightly unnervingly that I'm going supposed to be talking about quite grown-up things today. Well, rest assured, parents, I'm not going to talk about anything controversial whatsoever but I will talk a bit about when I was young and then I will talk about a book that isn't even out yet brand new proof copy you are the very first people to see it and um, and then I'll talk also about my autobiography Jackie Daydream um, and when I wrote Jackie Daydream it was quite interesting for me to think back to my past and what I was like as a small girl and um, I think the one thing that made me stand out amongst any other um, small girls was that I always had my head in a book. Absolutely everywhere I went, I walked around and there was my book. I even, my mum was very, very strict about my table manners, but she did, just for a quiet life, let me even, this is very rude, read my books at the table and so any of the books that I've managed to keep from my childhood have got little slurps <laughs> of sort of cornflake milk or something all over them not a good idea but even now I'm afraid when I'm by myself when I'm eating I have to read I read first thing in the morning last thing at night I read in the bath and even I love to go swimming and um, Again, this is a terribly stupid thing to do, but I've perfected the art of walking along reading, and I know the walk to the swing bars backwards, and so I walk along the pavement reading a book, and then mercifully, I do know that when, when you get to the road, you stop, you put your book down, and you look for the traffic, but there are many lampposts on the way. So if ever you see me with a black eye, it's because I've gone bang <laughs> straight into a lamppost. So when, when I was young, I loved reading and I also loved writing. Anybody here like writing stories? Quite a few of you. Well, it was the one thing that I was good at at school. I was useless at maths. I was useless at all sports and all games. Nobody ever picked me for any teams because I was such a liability because I couldn't catch a ball. I couldn't run fast but that I could write stories. 
All the way through my primary school, I was just known as the girl who writes the stories. Then I went on to my secondary school. And it's always a big step, isn't it, when you go to a brand new school. And I so hoped I would become a brand new person who would somehow be able to do maths, to be able to run like the wind and catch balls and be captain of the sports team. And it didn't happen at all. But sadly, I suddenly seemed to stop being the girl who could write stories, because we had a very, very good English teacher, but such a strict, exacting English teacher. And when she marked my English essays, she generally gave me a very low mark. And she put all sorts of little comments in red ink in the margins of my essays. Things like slang, too colloquial, I don't like your tone, Jacqueline, or this is not suitable, exclamation mark. And I got very, very downhearted. However, I do rather think if I gave that wonderful teacher, Miss Pierce, one of my published books now, she'd reach for that red pen and go, slang, too colloquial, don't like your tone, this is not suitable. More explanation marks. But certainly Miss Pierce never, ever thought I'd make it as a writer. Um, my mum and dad didn't think I'd ever be able to get a book published. They thought it was quite a mad idea. Um, I didn't come from a very posh background at all. Everybody in my family left school as soon as they could. Unfortunately, I had to leave school early, but my mum was determined that I get a training. And she thought that young ladies, the very best job for them was to be a secretary. I didn't want to be a secretary, but, but in those days, and particularly if you had a very fierce bossy mum like mine, you did as you were told. So I went off to a technical college to learn how to be a secretary. My heart sank as soon as I started to learn shorthand and typing, because I wasn't any good at it. But towards the end of the course, I knew I'd have to try and earn my own living. And I was looking in the pages of the London Evening Standard for any kind of job that I could do, when I saw this advert saying, wanted teenage writers. And I thought, well, I'm a teenager. And I'm absolutely desperate to be a writer. So I wrote off for more information. And this firm, DC Thompson's in Dundee, sent me this big information pack of all the things they were looking for, for a brand new teenage magazine. It wasn't due to come out till the following year, but they wanted to gather heaps and heaps of information and all sorts of different articles before it was ready to be published. And they wanted beauty tips, they wanted fashion hints, and they wanted lots and lots of romantic short stories. Well, the beauty thing was a non-starter. I was no beauty. I didn't know anything about beauty routines. I simply went to Boots the Chemist, bought the cheapest makeup products, shoved it on the face, hoped for the best. Um, I certainly couldn't give any fashion advice because although I had a Saturday job by this time, I didn't actually earn enough money to buy my own clothes. And um, therefore, I wore the sort of clothes that my mother felt suitable. And remember, she, she wanted me to be a lady. And no teenage girl wants to look ladylike. I did not look cool. I looked ridiculous. And so I certainly wasn't up to giving anybody else fashion advice. Short stories, wonderful. But romantic short stories, I somehow or other, it's the one sort of writing I'm not any good at at all. I kind of get the giggles if I try and, and take a great love scene too seriously. Um, well, certainly not in the slightly soupy, flowery way that, that magazines like you to write about falling in love. So um, these were a non-starter. So slightly boldly, I thought to myself, well, instead of writing all these things that they're suggesting, why don't I have a go at writing the sort of thing that I'd like to read in a teenage magazine? So I wrote this article, a funny one, about both the joy and the terrible, humiliating embarrassment of being a teenager, about going for a dance with your friends and how 
horrible it is if your best friends get asked up to dance and go off with different boys and you're the sad soul that's left with a false grin on your face tapping your foot in time to the music with no one to talk to no one to dance with and how horrible it is that when eventually somebody's dad arrives to take you all home you have to go home and there's your mum waiting up for you asking you if you had a good time and if you've got off with any boys and actually I used to fib terribly I'd say yes it was absolutely great and then go into my bedroom put the covers over my head and cry so I wrote about all this sending myself up and to my utter astonishment I sent it off and within 48 hours DC Thompson's wrote back to me and said they liked my article they thought it was funny and they wanted to pay me for it now, it was only £3, which even in those long-ago days, back in the 1960s, wasn't a lot of money. But it meant absolutely all the world to me, because it meant that someone somewhere actually had faith in me and wanted to pay me actual money for my writing. So I wrote probably an article or a story every single day, absolutely desperate to, to, to write more and more. And they started buying them regularly. But DC Thompson's sensible, canny Scottish firm thought, well, let's think of the mathematics. We can either pay her £3 a day for these stories, or we can offer her a job up in Dundee as a journalist for the going rate of £8 a week, and then everything she writes for us, she writes for nothing. So they offered me a job. And it was a big adventure for me. I, I jumped at the chance, but I didn't know anybody in Scotland. I was still only 17, but I thought, you, you only get one chance in your life like that. Why not just have a go? So off I went to Dundee with my suitcase on the overnight train. Now, my mum had been a bit anxious about me going off to this strange, cold, foreign country. And so she said that I had to stay in a hostel. And somebody had reassured me that I'd been booked into the Church of Scotland Girls Hostel. My mum liked the sound of that. And um, so I arrived at the hostel, but something had somehow gone wrong. And um, the matron there didn't know that I was coming. And when I said, well, I'd like a room anyway, she said, well, you can't have a room. We haven't got any spare rooms. We're completely and utterly full up. And I probably looked like I was going to burst into tears there and then on the spot because I didn't know where else to go, had hardly any money. Um, she took pity on me. She made me a cup of tea in the kitchen and she said, well, let me think about it. She said, I do have a spare put-you-up bed, just a little one. And she said, you're not very big, but where on earth are we going to put it? And she thought some more. And then she suddenly said, I know. She said, we've got the linen cupboard. Now, the linen cupboard probably wasn't much bigger than your airing cupboard at home, but with a bit of pushing, she managed to get the put-you-up bed inside the linen cupboard, and there I was. For the first three months of my working life, until somebody moved out, I lived in a cupboard. And it was actually a brilliant choice, because it was freezing, freezing cold. I, I was a softie from the south. I wasn't used to that sort of east coast biting cold wind. And the only warm place in the hostel, there was no central heating then, was actually the linen cupboard because the hot pipes went through it. So everybody wanted to be my best friend, to squeeze into the warm linen cupboard with me. And some of the girls used to actually squeeze up on the shelves and sort of put the spare blankets and sheets round them. And it was such fun. We had like a midnight feast every single night, the most brilliant, brilliant way to make really, really good friends. So I had a good time when I lived in the hostel. And I loved the two years that I spent with DC Thompson's. Um, I worked partly on the teenage magazine, which when it came out, much to my delight, was named after the youngest little English journalist. And so any mums in the audience remembering reading Jackie magazine, I am indeed that Jackie. And I also worked on various other magazines, which taught me to be versatile. I, there used to be a monthly magazine, Annabelle, and one of my first jobs was to write a supplement for Annabelle about having a baby. 
Now, bear in mind, I was 17 going on 18. I'd never even held a baby at this stage, but you didn't argue. I went and consulted Dr. Spock. I asked various experienced mums what it was like, and somehow or other wrote my supplement <laughs> about having a baby. And um, I, I did all sorts of different things. Well, I worked for a rather damn market weekly magazine called Red Letter. And the editor decided that as it had been called Red Letter all its life, it might be a good fun to make a feature of the readers' letters that we got. But our readers were sort of women who worked in factories or maybe stood on their feet all day working in shops. When they got home, they were tired out. They just wanted to put their feet up, read their story magazine. They didn't want to bother writing any letters, so we didn't get any readers' letters. So as I was the youngest journalist on the magazine, I had to write eight readers' letters every single week, which was wonderful training for me because I could pretend to be these eight different people and make up different things that they might be moved to write about. And then also, when I started on Red Letter, we had a, a syndicated column of what the stars foretell, the horoscope column. And then somebody decided, well, look, Jackie's up for writing anything. Why doesn't she write the horoscope column? Now, I know absolutely nothing about astrology, but I thought I'll have a go. And basically, I made it all up. So I'm born on December the 17th. That makes me Sagittarius. So while I was writing the horoscope column, all Sagittarians were going to meet tall, dark, handsome strangers. <laughs> and they were going to come into lots and lots of money, and they were going to achieve all their ambitions. And the weird thing is that even though my predictions got wilder and wilder, I've been so lucky most of these predictions have actually come true for me. And in those days, my biggest ambition of all was to write a book and get it published. And now I have written so many books that I practically lost count of how many there are. And it's, it's really just incredible that, that here I am back in Scotland and, and that 17, 18-year-old girl, well, she seems a bit like my, my daughter maybe or even my granddaughter, I suppose, now. But she doesn't really seem to have that much to do with me. Um, and I've been thinking about all the different books that I've written and all the different age groups that they're written for. And mostly, they're written for, I would say, 7 to 14-year-olds. But there are a few that are very much for, for younger children. And also, over the last 10 years, every now and then, I've decided to write some books for teenagers. Now, I know perfectly well that some girls quite young, seven or eight, read the teenage ones. I don't think it really matters. If you're starting to read a book and you're interested in what's going on and you understand what I'm talking about, well, then that's fine with me. However, mums and dads sometimes have different ideas. So if, if you're about eight years old, nine years old, and your mum says, no, you're too young to read the Girls in Love series, well, then you have to do what your mum says and, and wait a while. Um, there are four books about Ellie, Magda and Nadine and um, they are 13 going on 14 in year 9 at their secondary school and Girls in Love is all about falling in love for the first time and maybe not really falling properly in love, just wanting to show off to your friends that you've got a boyfriend too. Girls Under Pressure is about the way you look because there are very few females in the world that like the way they look. They either think they're too big or too small or they don't like their hair or whatever. And that's all about these sorts of issues. And then there's Girls Out Late, which is all about being incredibly naughty and pretending to your mum and dad that you're going around to your friend's house when actually you're going off to a concert that you're not allowed to go to and all the trouble that you can get into when that happens. And then Girls in Tears is about all sorts of different things going wrong and how horrible it is when you fall out with your best friends because basically when you're a teenage girl your best friends are there for you 
through thick and thin. And boyfriends can come and boyfriends can certainly go. But if you've got your best friends, you are generally fine. So they're quite light-hearted books. But there are also books for teenagers that are quite serious. Um, Vicky Angel is a very sad book. Um, about Jade's best friend Vicky dying and then seeming to come back to her as a ghost. Um, then there's Dustbin Baby. That's another sad book about poor April on her 14th birthday trying to find out who she is, why she's here, who, who, who her own mother is. She, she has no idea. Then there's Love Lessons, which is um, a, a book about Prue who falls passionately in love with her art teacher. And people often ask me, was that based on your own personal experience? And I always say, absolutely no. And certainly, absolutely nothing happened between me and my art teacher. But I did like him rather a lot. <laughs> so, so, And then my latest book for teenagers, which isn't out until um, October, and won't look like this. This is what's called a proof copy, which gets sent to various people in the book trade and reviewers um, a few months before it actually comes out so they can have a read of it and see what they think of it. It's, it's that Nick did do that design, but I've seen the real cover for Kiss and it's got a much more dramatic design and it's got Nick's wonderful illustrations inside. Proof coffees are a bit boring because they don't have any actual illustrations inside. And I thought what I might do just for five or ten minutes to whet your appetite for next October is read a bit so you can see the sort of book it is. I hated lunch times. I always missed Carl so much. When we were in middle school, we spent all our time together. We'd rush off the moment the bell went, shovel down our school dinners in 10 minutes flat, and then we'd have a whole hour just being us. We'd sneak off to one of our special favorite places. When it was sunny, we'd sprawl by the sandpit or sit kicking our legs on the wall near the bike sheds. We'd lurk in the library most of the winter. It didn't matter where we were, just so long as we were together. Some days we didn't talk much. We just read our books, chuckling or commenting every now and then. Sometimes we drew together or played silly paper games. But most days we'd invent another episode of Glass World. We'd act it out, though we couldn't do it properly at school, the way we could inside the glass hut. The other kids thought as weird enough as it was. If they came across us declaring undying love as King Carlo and Queen Silviana, they'd fall about laughing. We'd mutter under our breath and make minute gestures, and the magic would start working, and we'd be whirled off to the glitter of glass world. It was always a shock when the bell rang for afternoon school, shattering our crystal crowns and glass boots. We trudged back along the pizza-smelling corridors in our shabby trainers, wishing we could stay in Glass World forever. I still kept the Glass World chronicles up to date in our huge manuscript book, and Carl occasionally added notes or an illustration, but we didn't often act it out nowadays. Carl always had so much boring homework. Sometimes he didn't come to the glass hut for days, and I'd have to go calling for him. It didn't always work then. He'd follow me down through the garden and sit in the hut with me, but he'd be all quiet and moody and not contribute anything, or he'd be silly and mess around and say his speeches in stupid voices, sending it all up. I could generally get into play properly eventually, but it was very hard work. Maybe you shouldn't keep pestering Carl to play with you, said Mum. But he's my best friend in all the world. We always play together, I said. Oh, Sylvie, said Mum. She sighed. Nowadays, she often sighed when she talked to me. You're too old for this playing lark now, making up all these secret imaginary games. It's not normal. You're 13, for God's sake. When are you going to start acting like a teenager? You don't know anything about it, I said loftily. They're not little kids' games. We're writing our own series of books. You wait. They'll be published one day, and Carl and I will make millions, what with all the royalties and the foreign rights and the film deals. Oh, well, you can maybe pay off the mortgage then, said Mum. She sighed again. 
Who do you think you are, eh? J.K. Rowling? Anyway, Carl doesn't seem quite so keen on this playing. Sorry, writing, lark nowadays. You're both growing up. Maybe it's time to make a few new friends. Isn't there anyone you can make friends with at school? I've got heaps of friends, I lied. I've got Lucy. She's my friend. That was true enough. Lucy and I had made friends that worrying first day in Milstead High School. I'd known her in first school and middle school, but I hadn't ever needed to make a proper best friend of any of the girls because I'd always had Carl. It was hard trying to make friends now in year nine. Nearly everyone had been at our middle school, so they just carried on in the same twosomes or little gangs. There were several new girls in our form, but they piled up together. There was also Miranda Holbein in the other year nine form, but she was way out of my league. It was a great relief when Lucy asked if I'd sit next to her and acted friendly. She was a giggly girl with very pink cheeks, cheeks as if she was permanently embarrassed. She sang in the choir and was always very good. She had page boy hair and always had a shining white school shirt and never hitched up her knee-length skirt and wore polished brown lace-up shoes. She looked almost as babyish as I did. So we sat next to each other in every lesson and shared chocolates and crisps at break. We chatted about ordinary humdrum things like television programmes. She liked anything to do with hospitals and wanted to be a nurse when she grew up. And pop stars. She loved several members of boy bands in a devoted little sisterly fashion, knowing off by heart their birth signs and favourite food and every single number one on their albums in order. Lucy was fine for an everyday friend. I would never have encountered her as my best friend, of course. She lived just around the corner from school, so she went home at lunchtime. I lived too far away. Anyway, my mum was busy working at the building society, not home to cook me egg and chips like Lucy's mum. I was stuck for company each lunchtime. We weren't allowed mobile phones at school, but I mentally sent Carl text messages. I miss you. Talk to me. See you in GH tonight? Question mark. We used to pretend we were so in tune with each other, we were telepathic. Maybe our psychic brainwaves weren't wired up for new technology. Nothing went ching-ching in Carl's head. If he ever tried to send me similar messages, I didn't pick them up, though I waited tensely enough, eager and alert. I asked Carl over and over what he did during his lunchtimes at Kingsmere Grammar, but he was unusually uncommunicative. He ate, he read. Oh, come on, Carl, tell me everything, I said. Elaborate, I want detail. Okay. You want me to describe my visit to the boys' toilet in elaborate detail? Stop being so irritating. You know what I mean. Who do you talk to? What do you do? What do you think about? Maybe you'd like to follow me around with a webcam, said Carl. He suddenly grinned and switched to manic TV presenter mode. Here is our unwitting suspect, Carl Johnson. Let's hone in on him. Ah, what is he up to now? He's lifting a finger. Has he spotted us? Is he about to remonstrate? No, he's picking his nose. Let's have a close-up, guys. Yuck! Oh, Carl's bit close friend Sylvie is making a pithy comment. Let's focus on little Sylvie. Smile at the camera, babe, he said, sticking his squared fingers right in front of my face. I stuck my tongue out. Keep it up, keep it up, that's the girl. We're now switching to our all-time favourite live op channel. Miss Sylvie West has suffered all her childhood from sharp tongue syndrome, but the eminent ear, nose and throat specialist, Mr. Carl Johnson, is about to operate. Scissors, please, nurse. Yes, here are the scissors, I said, snip-snapping my fingers. But we've switched to the mystery channel now, and I'm playing a scary girl, driven bonkers by her mad best friend, so she decides to stab him to death. I made my scissor fingers strike Carl's chest while he shrieked and staggered and fell flat at my feet, miming a bloody death. He did it so well that I could almost see a pool of scarlet blood. I bent over him. He lay very still, eyes half open, but staring past me, unblinking. Carl? Carl, I said, giving his shoulder a little shake. He didn't stir. My heart started beating faster. I crept closer, hanging my head down until my long hair tickled his cheeks. He didn't flinch. 
I listened. He didn't seem to be breathing. Stop it, Carl, you're frightening me, I said. He suddenly sat bolt upright, so that our heads bumped together. I screamed, Ah, I'm glad I'm frightening you, because we switched the horror channel now, and I'm a ghost come back to haunt you. Be very afraid, Sylvie West, because I am going to get you. His hands clutched my neck, but I wrestled with him. I was small and skinny, but I could fight like a wildcat when I wanted. We tussled a bit, but then Carl's fingers started tickling my neck. I creased up laughing and then tickled him in turn. We lay flat on our backs for a long time, giggling feebly. Then Carl reached out and held my hand in the special best friendship clasp we'd invented way back when we were seven. I held his hand tight and knew that we were best friends forever, more than best friends. We'd played wedding together, weddings together when we were little. Carl used to make me rings out of sweet wrappers. Maybe he'd give me a real ring one day. And so there is Sylvie. She's now, not only is Carl her very, very best friend for all these years, but now she's actually starting to fall in love with Carl. But as those of you who read my books know, I don't let it go as simply as that. Carl is starting to fall in love with somebody else altogether. This is one of those sad books. It rather reflects what actually often real life is like when you're young. You fall passionately in love with somebody, but sadly, they don't fall back in love with you. They're in love with somebody else. That somebody else doesn't love them. It's just, just very painful, but very special too. Um, lots of sad things and slightly worrying things happen in the book, but at the end, well, it's kind of got a bittersweet ending, and, and I do hope those older ones of you will, will like it. Um, it's not based on my own personal experience. I have wondered about writing about my own teenage years because um, quite, quite a lot happened to me when I was a teenager. Um, it, it's, it's quite difficult, though, writing about things. I mean, um, I, I, I'm very, very touched when children write to me and say, I love the fact that you did this, and I, I like all your rings, and I want lots of rings. Um, just like you, or I want to be a writer just like you, but I would hate to write truthfully about my teenage years and then have people writing to me saying, yes, I want to leave school young like you. I want to waste my time going out dancing with boys instead of studying like you, which I wouldn't approve of at all. I, I feel you. You work hard until you're 18. You go on to university. You do all sorts of things. But uh, certainly my teenage years were very different. It would be great fun to write about the, the years in Dundee. So I might actually tackle it. Well, I don't know what I would call it, though, um, because Jackie Daydream, the, the title for my autobiography, which goes up to the year I was 11, I knew mm, quite soon on that I was going to call it Jackie Daydream because it was one of my actual nicknames. Um, I had a horrible teacher at my primary school called Mr. Branson. He was a good teacher in that he used to read stories to us. He taught us a great deal, but he was so nasty and so fierce. And, and in those days, teachers were really allowed to do anything they fancied. Nearly every single boy in my class got the cane from Mr. Branson, often for saying, you know, just something that wasn't even particularly cheeky. but. Um, Mr. Branson was luckily quite sexist and he didn't cane the girls, but he did go sort of bang like that on the side of your head if you didn't think you were paying attention. When he was standing at the blackboard writing with chalk and he thought somebody was talking, he'd turn around and throw the chalk at you and he was a very good aim and it really, really hurt if he got you on the temples. And he also had this terrible habit of you were sitting in, in rows in your desk and he'd go up and down the rows looking at what you were writing. And if you've got this really scary person leaning over you, it kind of makes your hand go a bit trembly and you might make an ink blot or a mistake. And if he saw that, his ruler would whip out and go whack 
across the back of your knuckles, which was really so scary that it made you worse. And I was so scared of him, I never really dared look him in the eye, because he had one of these red bulbous faces and sort of eyes that popped a bit. And um, he said that was because I was sly. And therefore, one of his nicknames for me was Jackie Sly Boots, which I think was a perfectly horrible thing to say to a, a young girl. He also was very unkind if you looked different in any way at all. I mean, if you were quite a large person, he would say, right, here comes fatso. If you wore glasses, as I did, he would call you Four Eyes. So I was Jackie Four Eyes. And then he also called me Jackie Daydream. But I don't blame him at all for calling me Jackie Daydream because I was a hopeless daydreamer. I was one of those irritating pupils where instead of concentrating on what he was saying, if I found it boring, my mind would go off into a little daydream, I'd make up some story or play with some imaginary friend inside my head and then I would jump violently when he suddenly said, Jackie Daydream, what did I just say? And of course I didn't have a clue. But I am grateful to Mr Branson because he gave me the perfect name for my book about myself, Jackie Daydream. And inside I sort of raided the family album and I've got all these different photographs of me from when I was about six weeks old, um, I deliberately chose the baby photo, the only one I could find where I actually had a frock on. All the others were of me start naked, and I was not putting me start naked in a book for people to giggle at. Um, but there's me with my first boyfriend, me on holiday, me with my all-time favourite lovely teacher, Mr Townsend, who since Jackie Daydream was published has actually got back in touch with me, which was a, a big thrill. Um, me with all my dolls, because there's so many dolls in this book, I love dolls. Um, me on the beach with a book, because everywhere I went um, I took a book with me. Um, there's a whole chapter in the book about my lovely grandma when she was a little girl who she had the most amazing childhood. She was very much a kind of suitcase kid. She went from pillar to post. I was very, very fond of my grandma. And for a little while, um, when I was very young, my parents and I actually lived with my grandparents because we're quite a poor family. And um, we, we couldn't afford to have our own house. So we all squashed up together in this very, very small house. There was a lot of tension because my parents didn't like each other and argued all the time. My mum didn't get on with her mum. My dad didn't get on with either of his in-laws. But I didn't mind it because I particularly liked to be with my grandma. We used to do things at the same pace because when I was three or four, I, I was quite good at walking and we could walk into Kingston, which took about 25 minutes. Um, and I, I didn't mind, I didn't moan or, or whatever, but I couldn't go very quickly. And my grandma couldn't go very quickly either because she had arthritis and so she had to go very, very slowly. But the magical thing about my grandma was that she didn't mind me sort of rabbiting on, making things up. She was very good whenever um, I played with my dolls because she would always ask me what their names were and what they liked doing and everything. You know, no, nobody else had any time to do this. And when we went from this walk, from my grandma's house all the way into Kingston, we'd look at everything along the way, and we'd look at all the houses. And there was a particular long road on the way into Kingston which had really lovely Victorian houses, some little ones, some big ones. And we'd make up stories together rather as Charlie does with her mum in the Lottie Project as they walk along the road about all the different families that lived in all the different houses. And we'd always pause outside one house, a pretty grey brick, double-fronted Victorian house, the nicest house in the road, with a um, lovely, lovely stained glass window in the front door and beautiful sort of plasterwork above it with a sort of flower pattern. And my grandma always used to look at this house in a very pretty garden with, with four hawthorn trees in the front. And she'd say, oh, I give anything to live in a house like that. And it was always our special favourite. And do you know the magic thing? I actually live in that house now. I, I had to move three years ago because I'd lived in a very little house for so long with 50 
15,000 books. So you had a book avalanche if you ever slammed the front door. And eventually, I got up the courage to move. And I wanted to stay living in Kingston for many, many reasons. But I couldn't find any house that really was absolutely perfect. And I kept going on about this magic house that my grandma and I actually had always loved. And a friend said to me, well, look, I know the house isn't on the market. Why don't you knock at the door and see if they would ever, if they ever put it on the market, if, if they'd ever consider you? Well, I wasn't brave enough to do this, but I did write them a letter explaining all about how their house had be, always been my dream house and popped it through their door with my phone number. And astonishingly, they phoned up the next day and they were about to put the house on the market. However, bad move because they knew how much I wanted it. So they wanted an enormously expensive price and we had to do a great deal of negotiating. But eventually, the house is mine and I am so thrilled to bits that I live there. So I, I go through all, all of Jackie Daydream talking about all my friends and um, school life and my mum and my dad. There were not one but two chapters about all my favourite books. So if any of you have got teachers who say, for goodness sake, are you taking out another Jacqueline Wilson? Please do read something or other else. There are all sorts of suggestions for other much nicer, wonderful children's classic books to read. And then I finish... Jackie Daydream, actually on the most magical summer holiday that when I was 11, when we went to Bournemouth. Now, mostly our summer holidays, Biddy, my mum, Harry, my dad and I, our summer holidays were a bit of a disaster because my parents still didn't get on, even on holiday. They had terrible rows. I was always so embarrassed because I was sure they'd shout at the tops of their voices and I'm sure everybody else could hear in the hotel room. And, um, you know, you sometimes look at other families and they seem to be having a lovely, happy, fun time. But I don't know what changed. This one particular holiday, it was wonderful. My mum and dad got on. My dad didn't have one of his terrible rages at all that holiday. It was certainly not as far as I can remember. It was the first time I'd been to Bournemouth. And it's a very pretty seaside town. It was boiling hot every day. I made friends with the girl two years older than me called Diana who seemed very exciting and glamorous and we danced together in the evenings at the hotel dances and it was just one of those fantastic holidays and I don't know if any of you have ever been to Bournemouth but on the from the cliff top there's a zigzag path and you can run all the way down um, I think you'd have to be a mountain goat to run all the way up again, but certainly it was part of the holiday. And um, I, I used to like doing it e each day. And I end um, Jackie Daydream by saying, I love Diana, I love Bob, I love Shirley. These were other people that we met on holiday. I was so happy, I even loved John. That was Diana's irritating little brother. I love Biddy and Harry, who even seemed to love each other this one magical holiday. They didn't have a single row the entire fortnight. I woke up early every morning. Once, when both my parents were still sleeping soundly, I pulled on my favourite jeans and shirt and slipped out of the room all by myself. I crept out of the hotel, through the garden, out of the gate, down the road, all the way to the cliff top. I stood gazing out at the turquoise sea, trying to find the right words in my head to describe it. I wondered if I'd ever be a real writer. I'd finished Wintle's Wonders, that was my holiday book by Noah Stretfield, and was now reading my puffin paperback of E. Nesbitt's Five Children and It. I wondered what I would wish for if I encountered the irritable Samiad hiding in Bournemouth's golden sands. I wish, I wish, I wish, I whispered, not knowing what to wish for. It was no use wishing that Biddy and Harry would stay happy together. I knew them too well to wish for that. It was a waste wishing to be a teenager, because I would be one soon. I could wish for Diana and me to stay proper friends after the holiday, but we'd already exchanged addresses, promising to write to each other. So I wished my usual wish, the one I wished when I blew out my birthday candles, when I spotted the first star of the evening, when I hooked the Christmas turkey wishbone round my little finger. 
I wish to get to be a real writer and have a book published one day. I wonder what I'd have thought if I could have gazed over that brilliant blue Bournemouth sea far into the future. I wouldn't have believed it possible that one day I'd have 90 books published, not just one. I'd laugh at the idea that one amazing day children would queue up outside a bookshop in Bournemouth for eight whole hours simply so I could sign their books, my books. I stared at the sea, the early sun already warm on my face. Bournemouth, I said, tasting the word as if it was a boiled sweet. Then I started running all the way down the zigzag path for the sheer joy of it, still wondering if wishes ever came true. And they have done, which is absolutely wonderful. So, now, I thought I would talk for 40 minutes, and I, uh, yes, I, 50 minutes I've done. Okay, I've rambled on for 10 more minutes. So we have 10 minutes for questions. Okay, um, and as I can't see very well, Val is going to be very kind and, and help pick out those of you who've got questions. Well, I think we don't, we don't have all that much time, so forgive me, there is no way we could be here till next week. With, I'm sure you all want to ask Jacqueline things. So can we pick, for the sake of our staff, somebody in that row, that block there, no? Yes? How long have you done books? How long have I done books? I have written books all my life. When I wrote my first full-length book, though it wasn't turned into a book, when I was 15, um, but those of you who want to be writers, um, unless you're incredibly lucky, you will find you have to do kind of like an apprenticeship, like anything else. And I think my first three full-length books I knew weren't good enough even to send to a publisher. You have to sort of work things through and find out what you can do, what you can't do. Um, but I had, had my first book published when I was about 22, 23, something like that. And I've been writing ever since. I've never done any other kind of work. Um, and so I've been very, very lucky. Um, the last, I would say, 10, 15 years, I've been very, very lucky indeed and um, managed to make a very comfortable living out of it. But all the time before that, I did probably earn much more money if I'd stayed being a secretary. <laughs> so, so it's not a way to become quickly rich and famous, but it's a very rewarding job. The next block. Do you have a favourite book that you've written? Um, I chop and change with my favourite books. Sometimes I choose The Illustrated Mum because although it's a sad book, I did try very hard with that book. Sometimes I choose Lola Rose um, because I got very involved with that family. Um, and also, my all-time favourite adult character is in that book, Auntie Barbara. I want an Auntie Barbara myself. She should come along and look after me. That would be fantastic. Um, and um, I've, I've just finished a book um, that I've just sent off to my publishers, um, and it's called My Sister Jodie. And it took me longer to write than my usual books. And that one, maybe, maybe it's just because it's my new baby, or maybe it's, it's one I, it's quite close to my heart. So I might, in the future when it's out, choose my sister Jodie too. Next block. Is Jamie Andrews' house in the Lottie Project based on the one that you walk past with your grandma? Ah, that, that's very clever of you. Um, uh, not really. Their, their house is, is bigger than my house, but it's full of books, isn't it? And my house is full of books. There is a very happy man called Ray O'Neill, lovely man, in Kingston. And for about two years, he's a carpenter. I have kept him busy making bookshelves <laughs> for, for my, my house. I, I have my house, and I also have at the end of the garden a little sort of hut-like building. And that is my actual library, which has got books all around it and, and books in the, in, it looks like a bookshop, basically. So there's that um, place where I keep my books. And then in my living room, um, I have all my favourite books, 
and then in my study I have some of my own books and then my current books that I'm reading and then there's books in the bedroom upstairs I mean there are just basically books everywhere but I, I seem to remember that's quite a tall house my my house is is more a sort of imagine quite a, a pretty doll's house sort of thing it's that sort of shape and the la last block where do you write your books ah well I have a study and in fact, I don't know if there are any Guardian readers here, but my study was actually feed. I, I'm doing well with the Guardian in that um, one week they did a picture of my rings because they were doing a whole feature on people's hands. And then I think the very next week they featured my study. Um, and those people who, who knew me rang me up and said, good heavens, Jackie, it looks so tidy, because I had done a very quick sort out and tidy when I knew that it was going to be shown. But to be truthful, I mean, I do do my actual typing on the computer in my study and do sort of phone calls and everything, but mostly I write all over the place in that I, I still write in notebooks, and, and then type it all out afterwards. And I carry my notebook everywhere. And probably on the plane going back to London this afternoon, I will write a little bit of my notebook. Most of my stories for over the last five years have been written on trains. Kingston is half an hour's journey up to London Waterloo. And in that time, if I concentrate really fiercely, I can write four or even 500 words and then go and do whatever I have to do in London. And then if I'm still feeling quite perky, coming back on the journey, I can write another four or 500 words. And that's my actual writing of the novel done for the day. However, there's still heaps and heaps of rewriting to be done and also lots and lots of letters in the evening to children. So do not be surprised when you get close up to me when we do the signing, I have a big writer's lump on my finger. Well, I'm really sorry that we can't take any more questions because as I say, we could be here for many, many hours because I know probably everyone in this room would love to have Jacqueline a question. Before I thank Jackie, can I just tell you that if you want to buy a book, they are for sale in the signing tent which is to your left as you go out here then you get your book and Jackie will be in a very own writing pavilion called the snog which sounds like <laughs> something out of Coronation Street which With is yeah, and she won't have a pint of milk stout uh, which is to your right which is along here and uh, she will be there for quite some time uh, and you can have but before you all rush out uh, can I say what a privilege it is yet again? It's always very difficult chairing Jackie because I think, what shall I put on? And I try and raid my jewellery box and I can't do anything to compete with this. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Jacqueline Wilson. Thank you very much. Thank you.